Episode 7, Design, When We Work From Anywhere. Episode 7 is devoted to health in the built environment, from the office space to the home space. How is this ensured in the home work environment? What about the potential risk of exposure to domestic violence? Listeners must consider whether they provide first aid at work or just encourage or engage in better conversations with workforce. National Well Building Institute considers health in the built environment. And I've been an advisor for some of their design concepts for several years. Now, they look at the built environment typically in commercial spaces and how are you going to help regulate the need for movement? How are you going to help regulate the need for quality airflow and good water, for example? Um, nourishment, mind concepts, right? So that you have places to regenerate and to have some relaxation. You may have biophilia. I'm seeing plants behind you now. So that's the nature, the aspect of bringing nature inside. You may have rest and recovery rooms. So these kinds of concepts uh, come through in a commercial space and there are accreditation standards. They are now coming up with standards for the home environment. Okay. So this is not going away. These are international lead researchers in a global scale recognizing that this is a trend to stay this hybrid and distributed workforce model sometimes working from home sometimes working from anywhere and so there can be some standards around having health factors in a built environment in the home and employers can connect with that this is for new home builds for construction and builders that's coming out in 2023 so some of this same criterion in a commercial space customize and contextualize to home developments. We talk about the home office or you know the home environment. Essentially, it will be designed to accommodate those workers who do not come into the, the commercial can, space. The employer can be assured that that built environment in this new development, so it's not retro, it's for new developments because that's the easiest thing to, to start working with for accreditation standards, that their employers, employees, if they are put into this home development that they will have met certain conditions and criterion for health within that built environment that there will be opportunities for walking there will be opportunities to park a bike they will have disability access that there'll be good quality airflow and good water uh, good places for rest and restoration so, so these are future builds so future builds future builds so new projects or whether it's a global vibe, so okay. not just Queensland, not just Australia. So it's interesting because obviously there's a, if you look at where I live in the Sunshine Coast, there's a shortage of homes. So is there really any compelling reason to have to do this? People want to move to the Sunshine sure. Coast anyway. But over time, when you're looking at employers trying to say that they, you know, have a space where people, they feel confident where people can work from home, this could be quite attractive. If you have a new tech company and they're building in an area with new home developments, 
wouldn't it be encouraging for them to relocate if they needed to relocate staff into these types of homes, right? Not necessarily okay. no, but they may be situated near these kinds of home developments. It might be attractive to have your business if the new hospitals, for sure. example. If there were home complex complexes there that met these standards, wouldn't that be also attractive for a commercial space, knowing yes. that their employees have access to this type of environment? And do you think those standards, if they were, let's say, applied to your home, do you think, and getting back to Alan's earlier point, to make the place safe in all respects, do you think there's scope by adopting these standards for employers to, for example, pay for a fit-out of a pre-existing dwelling? As I a benchmark. love that that could be the linkage, right? Mm. I love that that could be a linkage. It's not an impossible thing, Alan. What, what do you think? The idea of, so, you're, so your employer's saving office space, instead they give you 10, 15 or whatever, 20 grand, pursuant to a standard, so it, it's properly done, it's benchmarked to say according to the standards of 2023, we provide this, 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 this and this. And that's something an employer could, so, an employee could negotiate. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just looking up the um, legislation then. An employer that wants their employees to wear personal protective equipment uh, for safety reasons uh, is obliged to pay for that space in a particular way for safety reasons. And of course, we've got an extended definition of safety. Should an employer be paying for that? Whether it's a skylight or a fence. I mean, chairs are chairs. I mean, you can say, listen, I want a new mouse or I want a new chair. But we're talking big things. Air, lights. Air, the air we breathe. <laughs> That's it. That's <laughs> a big thing. important thing. The water I drink, the air yeah. that I breathe. Ventilation, the whole, the whole, and the COVID and ventilation. and Communicable um, disease protections. Yeah. In my home environment. So I'm going to pay for a spa. That's the where they draw the line. <laughs> no bubbles. But, uh, yeah, so, but cause, cause that leads me to a, something slightly darker. What about the employer protecting you at home against violence, domestic violence? Well, I think if you ask an employee to work at home, then, uh, you know, it's a package deal, isn't it? You've yeah. got to deal with all the issues that arise in the home. Like, it's really hard. When, when the pandemic started, everybody thought, I believe that it was just going to be something relatively short term when employees were working from home. Work from home, we just put the blinders on and let's just hope we get over this speed bump. Yes. And so all this level and complexity of thinking didn't happen. There was no time to really engage with that. Uh, work was just scrambling to try and get the basic functions still done. And everybody had a radical change in where they had to work and also how they worked and what technology they used, what communication systems, what leadership support. But now is the time where we can't just live in the shadows, where this type of concept must be brought to the table. And so what happens from a legal point of view in terms of you know, informed consent and some of that idea of you're, if you're acknowledging that there are risks in working from home, I sign, are there, is there any merit in signing waivers? I accept these inherent risks. What happens when that's tested? Oh, it's a good question. Uh, it is a good what question. Uh, waivers and disclaimers are useful, but they're of limited value and they certainly don't give you complete protection. So I say, yes, I'm working from home. I have yep. a pet. I recognize I yep. could be bit, bitten yep. by my pet. Da, 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 and I say, yes, yep. I get yep. that. And I'm still bitten. I can still likely still submit a claim. You can always submit it, but in the criminal arena, there's no voluntary acceptance of risk. So if an employee is injured at home performing their work duties um, and it's a criminal matter, then the employer will not be able to say they voluntarily accepted the risk. If it's a civil case where they're um, 
seeking compensation, then there could be an argument there about contributory negligence. So was the employee negligent in the way that they operated at home, giving rise, at least in part, to the, the incident that caused them injury? So in the case of a, if you had a sick cat that you didn't treat and that made the cat violent and dangerous, then maybe the employer would be able to say the employee contributed to that environment. If you can foster candour, upfront, full, frank conversations and discussions. The thing is, we've, we've lost we've lost some candour. Isn't it at the beginning you, you, you need to look at the, the work and then plan for that work and say, how do I want my workers to perform this work? And what are the options? And you, you need to assess all the different options, think about which one suits best or whether there could be a mix. And and, and just so so right about just having conversations, conversation. consultation, even even in this world of you know psychosocial concerns that are on the rise, more standards, more attention from uh, practice guidelines, from codes of practice, et cetera. If you had that conversation with somebody saying, you know what, when you work from home, you could be isolated, you could be lonely. This is actually occurring. These are concerns. So we need to recognize what symptoms might arise should this be happening so that you can communicate to us. So it's also yeah. part of that education piece too. Is so if you don't, you have to have some awareness before you have some detection, before you can take action yeah. and some communication around that and I don't think it's happening I maybe I'm a killjoy here everything you've said then Sarah I just don't think we're having employers and employees workers mm -hmm. and I think that's a consequence of COVID you know we were all rushed into heading home and working from home and, and none of it was planned yeah and we've had a couple of years as Sarah rightly pointed out before in terms of a better better design but now is the time to uptake this idea of of conversation, it's an issue of trust. I don't know, it might, we might have to rebuild that between. Well, when you look at that issue of psychological health, if you've got uh, a worker at home and you're concerned about their psychological health, that's a growing risk. That's, yeah. a, that's a risk that gets bigger and bigger the longer it's left un, unattended to. It festers. It's, mm -hmm. it, it, that, you know, we've talked about always in court, accidents waiting to happen, you know, with mm -hmm. cranes toppling. And, but these are accidents waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. And then you've pointed out earlier, Trej and Alan, about the nature of that work. So the lawyers, for example, that are exposed to sexual violence among children, that the nature of their work can be confronting and are they providing support or rest and rotation and breaks away from those types of exposure and it's almost therefore by inference oh well they they're working they know what they're doing but you've just got to be onto it and the only way you can be aware is if you communicate so alan the uh, the worker has been working from home pre uh, since COVID. oh they're still at home no one's checking in occasionally. You'll get reports, you'll get the work, the KPIs are ticking, we're getting the audit performances, but how do we know behind the facade, what is this person's state of um, well-being? Mental health. If, you, if you, as your workforce, were people that needed to go to other people's homes to check in on them, like nurses or home care people, um, that's a, that's there's the potential for there to be bad interactions and for them to develop a psychological condition, uh, you need to be checking on that. You need to be making sure that people are okay. So adopting that the model of the of the um, community workers, it might be as part of a, a better design situation where there would be the psychosocial first aider, for want of a better term, coming in and going around. I don't know if this is occurring, Sarah. Are you aware of, say, the larger firms, the bigger, the blue chips, having first aid psychosocial worker 
knocking on your door, having a cup of tea, having a cup of coffee, having a, a conversation, and generally having an assessment coming to your place from the employer, um, that could be a solution. What, what do you think? Interesting. That's that's because we're getting into the realm of big brother almost, right? So when you use that term first aider, that's sort of a hot topic because <laughs> what's happening too much, I believe, is the uh, relegation of, of responsibility and training to a general populace of workers to become mental health first aiders and they mm. have absolutely zero psychological credentials. Mm. And we're hearing that, in fact, that's problematic, that, in fact, the literature is saying that that's not effective and it's a big expense that employers are are investing in. Uh, and we're not certain that those people will have the right skills to identify and escalate psychological ill health. So when you say first aider, I'm just cautious with that topic, that term. So I yeah, get the concept. I, yeah. I get the concept. Yeah, I'm, I'm, cautious. I'm in the court case right now, which oh. unfortunately I can't talk about. But the yes. um, that talk around it. Talk around <laughs> it. So when you use the words first aid, yeah. and you're talking about physical injuries, yeah. you're talking about um, treating the person to the extent that they can then be moved to hospital or to a yeah. to a doctor to get further treatment. Yes. Triage, so you just stabilise, yeah, right. stabilising yes. the injury. Yeah. But when you talk about psychological first aid, um, well, there's a lot of people using that phrase, mm. and uh, it it doesn't have the same meaning. Um, it should have the same meaning in that the the, uh, the person who is uh, doing the counselling talks to an employee, realises that they need further help and then they go and get further help. All right, I'm going to make this one up right on the fly. Psychosocial worker. A psychosocial worker who is fully qualified to assess... Well, what is fully qualified? There, there are, there are qualifications, but if they're not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, then well, to right. what extent are you going to utilise their services? Well, I would... I'm just, again, I'm, I'm just running with this. So the equivalent of, a, say, a social worker who does community visits, and it can just be that, a social worker, they'd be suitably qualified, but who have also done additional training or accreditation qualifications around that industrial psychological component. Let's just say they are adept at recognising issues around psychosocial factors at work. So in the case... Are, are there such people that... Yes, there are. There are. In, okay. in the case that I'm involved in, a person who was not a psychologist uh, has done an assessment and uh, there's a question about whether or not they approved the person to go back to work and then the person who went back to work, unfortunately, was in a further incident where they died. Mm. So mm. there's a big question about when when a person is suffering from psychological trauma, when should they be allowed to go back to work mm. and who should be advising on when they should go back to work? And that's, that's so significant because we're just hearing advice left, right and centre right now. Yeah. Even in the guidelines, it's a lot of ambiguity and it sounds like we should be doing absolutely everything, but it doesn't mm. say who's responsible for what. So no matter what the employer is responsible, the PCBU, right? Really, really unclear. And as work system designers, you talk a lot about for organisational strategy, for physical capability, for cognitive capability and psychosocial capability. So in the world, in the vein of human factors, there's also context, there's obligations around designing for psychosocial well-being. But you don't have to be a registered psychologist to be yeah. a work design strategist. I don't think it's complex at all. I think it's simple. I think if you have a person, if you've got a worker and you have a reasonable basis for believing they have a physical injury, then you would send them off to be seen by a doctor. A specialist. And then the doctor would, well, the specialist, appropriate for whatever their 
that the injury is would give you a certificate saying they're either fit to come back to work or they're not fit to come back to work or they can come back to work on reduced duties. Uh, if you have a reasonable basis for believing that a person's got a psychological injury, then I think it's exactly the same. They should go and see an appropriately qualified professional and um, get a medical certificate to say they're either ready to return to work or not ready to return. But surely that's happening now, Alan. No, it's not. That's mm. the challenge. So I, that's right. So you, it, mm. there's this realm of talking about an individual where there's already some reason, a screening event, uh, an adverse event, something, a report, something's happened when you're talking about individual treatment versus designed for cohorts of workers. Mm. And that's what I'm talking about in work mm. system design. You're designing for populations of workers and you're integrating research into that design strategy versus here we have an individual that needs help. They need that medical intervention. But would that be part of the design though, Sarah? What, what Alan's saying to have specific people is part of that greater design at that macro level. Absolutely. So if you are a work design strategist yes. and companies are thinking about the fabric of their design of work, they should yes. have a consultant team to call upon for support. So their, their extension of their occupational rehab Team, yes. should always have specialty advisors ready to go on call. They've got to have those relationships mm. established. Well, that, that really surprised me, Alan, that they're given post, and what we've talked about post-COVID, that there hasn't been now a an army of experts suitably qualified, not only situated in the workplace, but also perhaps being now distributed to those workers. I have psychology bodies who are so overbooked, it's not crazy. Yeah, it's, it's hard in practice, though. Yeah. Uh, if you've got an employee who's sullen and treating into themselves, it's hard to make an assessment of what's yeah. going on in their world. I think face-to-face -face contact is very important, which then comes back to work design. You know, mm. if you've got people who are working from home 100% of the time, mm. are you going to go out and visit them, which might feel invasive, or uh, are you going to require them to come into the office once a week? You know, what? how are you going to manage it? And we, even though the toolkits are emerging, the challenge I find for employers is that they talk a lot about hazards. And in that understanding of risk, going back to risk-based assessments, there's not a lot of material that's easily used by employers that looks at interacting risk factors and does a risk assessment that tells you about the severity and the likelihood and of what type of condition that could be acute or cumulative in the psychological space, psychosocial ill health. Okay. It's a very broad quagmire of just hazard education. We hope you enjoyed that episode of Why Work. You've been listening to Trage, Sarah and Alan. And if you'd like to know more about some of the things we've talked about today, please subscribe and we'd be more than happy to provide you with names of cases and other things that may interest you. Please be aware that none of the matters we've talked about today should be construed as legal advice or any other type of advice. We're just here to talk about all things related to work. See you next time.